So we're going to continue in this series in First Peter, and I was thinking this week as I was looking at the text and what Peter is saying to us um, about a moment in my life I vividly remember. I was 14 years old, and I was sitting around a table with uh, my family. My uh, dad's birthday was that day, and we had a cake and presents for him. And I was 14, and my dad was turning 40. And it is the first time that I remember thinking, my dad's old. Like, he, he is old. He's 40. Now, 28 years later, uh, I do not think of 40 as old anymore at all. As a matter of fact, at 42, I see 50 on the horizon, and I'm convinced 50's not old either. That is what... Uh, is what I'm telling myself. Some amens. I don't really know what old is. I just know that I'm going to keep pushing it out. As the closer I get to it, I'm going to move it. That is called perspective. Perspective is literally from the original Latin word. It means to look through. Perspective is what you look through. It's what you look at the world through. And perspective doesn't change anything. It doesn't change reality. Facts are facts. Age has always been age. But what is changing for me is my perspective of what age is and what old is and what young is. And all of us have a perspective, a perspective on life. And while it doesn't change facts, it doesn't change reality, it does impact how we live You've probably heard that saying, perspective is reality. What that means is that often people see reality as whatever their view is. And so it is incumbent upon us, the way that we need to live, is we want our perspective to be as clear as possible. We want to see things as clearly as we can. You have probably all been the victim of... A situation where someone had a perspective about you or something that you had done that just was not right. And they related to you in a way that was not helpful. Maybe they were angry at you or hurt by you because, not of what you had done, but because what they had perceived you had done. And at the same time, we've all been on the other side of that, um, where um, we have perceived wrongly about a situation, about someone's motives. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I think one of the reasons that Peter has spent so much time in this letter helping us as believers to understand our identity, who we are, and what Christ has done for us is because he wants us to have right perspective. He wants us to be able to see and think clearly about our lives because He wants us to act out of who we are. That is something that we've talked about here before. But when you know who you are, then you know what to do. And if you don't truly know who you are, then you are confused on how you're supposed to live. And I think Peter spends a lot of time helping us to see our identity so that we will know how to properly live. And in this letter, it's really a series of teachings where he expresses doctrinal truths. He tells us what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. And then he follows that up with exhortations of how we apply those doctrinal truths. Because this is true, 
here's how you should live. Because this is who you are, this is how you should behave. Because this is who God is and what God has done for you, this is how you should live and conduct yourself. He wants us to have right perspective. And the fact is we every single day strive or should be striving for that because we are filled with a world that wants to change our perspective, wants to tell us how we should see things. There's only one clear way to see. So let's start, if you are a note taker and you have one of our worship guides, let's start with this life truth. We should often think deeply about our life through the lens of eternity. Send your hand out this morning. We should often think deeply about our life through the lens of eternity. In verse 11 that Nick read to us a moment ago, Peter says, Beloved, he's writing to the church, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He is telling them, reminding them once again of their identity. They are sojourners and exiles. These are synonyms. He's already called us exiles once at the very opening of the letter. If you're a believer in Christ, part of your identity is you are a sojourner and exile on the earth. Those two words mean basically the same thing. And in the very first sermon in this series, what I told you was exile is best thought of as resident alien. An alien is someone who lives in a place that's not their home. They live there, but it's not their true home. And so we are resident aliens. We're one, we are ones who are living in a place that are not our home. And what he wants us to know about this is that because this is not our home, because this is not our homeland, we should not adopt the customs of this land. We should not take on in our, in our lives what the culture does. We should not do things just because the society around us is doing them. We should not think in a certain way just because that's how the culture thinks. We are not to adopt the practices and the thoughts and the mentality of the world around us. And there's a couple of ways that we can think about this, sojourners and exiles. One of them is because we are sojourners and exiles, we need to be very careful that we don't get overly attached to the good gifts of this earth. And there are many good gifts. There are many good things to enjoy. But you can make those good things your God. You can make your life about those good things, living for all those good things. There's nothing wrong with having a career. Nothing wrong with making money. Nothing wrong with having a family, going on vacation, doing hobbies, pleasurable things. But you can get too attached to them. And you should not get too attached to the things of this earth, even the good things, because this isn't your ultimate home. Now, there's another way to think about it. Not only should you not become overly attached to good, to the good things, but you should not overly dwell on the bad things. Bad things happen. We do harmful things to other people, and people do harmful things to us. And it often brings hurt, real hurt, 
that we have to work through. But if we spend too much of our lives dwelling on all of the bad things that have happened and how life is not fair and how people are not treating us the way that they should, if we dwell on that and we stay in that place, then we are also forgetting this isn't our home. This is not our ultimate reality. We will become angry, bitter people if we dwell on all the bad. We are sojourners and exiles. We're resident aliens. We live here temporarily. This is not our final home, so don't make too much of it. Don't take make too much of the good. Don't make too much of the bad. I think that's part of what Peter wants to remind us of. And then the other thing, the other thing is don't drift along with the world. Don't. Don't let the current of the thinking of society, don't step into that and drift with it. You need to think differently. You need to have a different perspective. And so from this, you are sojourners and exiles. Peter is going to give us two exhortations. One is positive, one's negative. He's going to start with the negative. Here's what you don't do because you're sojourners and exiles, and then he's going to say, here's what you should do because you're sojourners and exiles. So we'll start with the negative. In your notes, position yourself that you may keep far away from the irregular desires of your human nature. Position your life that you may keep far away from the irregular desires of your human nature. So let's read verse 11 again. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Here's his first exhortation to us. Because this isn't our home, because this is not our ultimate reality, we should abstain from passions of the flesh. The word abstain means keep far away from. That's why I use the term position your life. Put yourself day by day in a position to stay as far away from the passions and the desires of your flesh as you can. Passions means earnest desires. Desires in and of themselves are not bad. Every one of us has desires. One theologian said that the human... The human body, the human life is a desire factory. We're constantly producing new things that we desire. And desires are not in themselves bad. It is what is the object of our desire or what is the makeup of our desire. And the way that the Bible presents it is two categories. You have desires that come from your flesh. You have desires that come from the Spirit of God in you. And one is good and one is bad. And what Peter is talking about here is the bad type of desires, the passions of the flesh, literally irregular desires because they're not in step with God and His Word. Another way to put them is violent desires. The word can mean violent desires. They wage war. They wage war against you. They wage war against others around you. 
I want to look at a couple of places in Scripture where the Bible talks about these irregular desires that Peter is saying we should keep from. So if you have a Bible, if you'll go to Mark chapter 4 for a moment. Go to Mark 4, and let me take this opportunity to say that if you are here today and you do not have a copy of God's Word, we would like to gift you a copy of God's Word. So you can see me or Nick before you leave today, and we have a brand new copy of Scriptures that we would love to give you as a gift from Agape. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus teaches what is, he says, his most important parable. And he says, if you don't understand this parable, you're not going to get any parable, any story, any illustration, any teaching. And it's the parable of the soils. And it is one that I would commend to you to take to heart, to read, to memorize through, to understand. Because Jesus says in this parable, he defines that there are four types of soils. And he says those soils are hearts. So every one of us in this room... We have one of these four types of hearts, one of these four types of soil. And Jesus said that the Word of God is like a seed. It's constantly being thrown out. People are sowing it. You know, people post things on social media, people read Scripture, people preach, people talk about the Word, and that's the seed. It's being thrown out. And every time the Word of God is thrown out or sowed like that, it falls on one of these four types of soil. One of them is called the path. One of them is called rocky ground. One of them is called thorns. And one of them is called good soil. We're focused on one of those today, and it's in Mark chapter 4, verse 19. The type of heart that has thorns. And here's how Jesus explains that when He's explaining the parable to his disciples. Other people, in verse 18, other people are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, and then look at verse 19, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves to be unfruitful. Jesus said, some of us, that's who we are. The Word of God hits our hearts, we hear it, we get excited about it, we may go home talking about it, we may say, I'm going to start doing that, this is how I'm going to live. And then, boom, something happens and chokes all of that out. All of those good intentions, all of that thought of what we were going to to do with God's Word that we heard that day or that we read that day gets choked out, and it ends up not being fruitful. And Jesus says it's thorns. What are the thorns? He says the cares of the world, worries, anxieties of the world, get so focused on those things. Are my needs going to be met? What's going to happen at work? What's going to happen in this situation? I'm worried about the economy. I'm worried about the government. I'm worried about what's happening all around us. And it just, we get so focused on that. We get on our phones. We get on the internet. We're reading all of this stuff. We get so worried. And the word of God that we had heard or read is choked out. He also says the deceitfulness of riches, wanting to be rich, wanting to have things and build up our savings account, just pursuing that, working, and working 
which is a good thing, but working extra and keep going and keep going and doing as much as we can because we're trying to get a nest egg. And Jesus says that can be deceitful. And then here's the other one, desires for other things. In other words, this huge big bucket. What may choke out God's Word in your life is that you're passionate about other things. Take that, make it a blank, and put whatever in it stirs your heart. That word desires is the same one from Peter, passions. Earnest desire for other things. You probably know what that is for you. If you've been walking with Christ for a while, you probably know what you overly desire that often gets your attention and keeps your attention, so much so that you don't spend time with Jesus and the Word of God is choked out. That's one way that it works. Here's another way it works. Look over at Ephesians chapter 4. Go to Ephesians 4, and we're going to look at verse 22. This is Paul writing the church in Ephesus. And I'll start in verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about Jesus and were taught in Jesus as the truth is in Jesus, assuming that that's true of you, church, here's verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So Paul says, if you're a believer... Position your life this way. You need to put off that old self. You need to put off the way that you used to live and you used to think and you used to see things. Put it off. Because here's what's true about your old self before you came to know Jesus. Or if you came to Jesus really young, here's what's true of that manner of life that you would have had had the Lord not blessed you at a young age with salvation. What is true about it, it is that it is corrupt. It's not pure. It wants wrong things. I know we've said this many times here, but I, I think it's worth saying because the world is so apt to tell us, follow your heart. And the Bible says, yeah, your heart's corrupt. Your heart's going to lead you down the wrong road. Your heart's deceitful. That's not a great idea. It's not a good guide. Not in the natural form. And what corrupts us? We're corrupted by deceitful desires. Same word. Desires not only will get your attention so that it chokes out God's Word, but desires, the passions of the flesh, will deceive you. How do they deceive you? They promise something they can't deliver. They tell you, this is what you need to be happy. This is what you need. This is what is due you. This is what you're owed. This is your right. And it's deceiving us. And the enemy of God knows how to take these desires of our flesh and cause them to deceive us into that old way of life to not living as Jesus would have us live. When it comes to the enemy of your soul, he doesn't care 
if He distracts you and deceives you with harmful trials or with grand prosperity, as long as He can keep you from Jesus. He will make you as rich and prosperous and pleasurable as He can if it will keep you from Jesus. Or He will make you as miserable and lowly and bitter as He can if it will keep you from Jesus. It matters not to Him. He just wants to deceive you. So back to 1 Peter, this is why Peter says, of these passions, they wage war against your soul. Literally, they take up arms and soldier against you. Here's reality. Something in you wants to kill you. Something in your flesh wants to lead you down a road that is going to destroy your soul. These passionate desires that come from our human nature, that are not in line with God's Word or God's plan, they war against light, they war against truth, they war against affection for God and for other people. They take up arms and they come against us. And the enemy of our souls uses them to destroy our souls. It might be lust. It might be lust of the eyes or of the mind. It might be coveting. We want what we don't have. We want what someone else has. My wife this week got a new MacBook for her job. I've never even wanted a MacBook until she got one. And now I've spent all week. And every time I walk past her desk and it's sitting there, it calls my name. You want one. And I do. And I don't have any semblance of the money to go get one. But I even had the thought this week, I wonder how much it would be per month. It's nothing more than just coveting. I don't need it. I just want it. And she's not going to let me touch that one, so I mean, i got to get my own. It might be worldliness. I just, I want what other people have. I want to do what other people are doing. I want to listen to what they're listening to. I want to watch what they're watching. I want to do what they're doing. That's what I want. It might be anger. Two greatest sins I've wrestled with in my life, lust and anger. And as I've gotten older, it's been more anger than anything else. When Peter says... I urge you, because this isn't your home, abstain from the passions of the flesh. He is calling you to do what is best for you. The world will tell you differently. The world will say it makes no sense to deny yourself. Follow your heart. You only live once. 
Do what you like. Do what you enjoy. Go after it. No one has a right to tell you to deny yourself what you want. Because this is your life. And the Bible says, it may give you what you're looking for, for a time. But ultimately, it will destroy your soul. It is best for you to abstain from these things. And the way that we do that is we put all of our dreams, we put all of our pains in the right perspective by remembering who we are. The very first time in this letter that Peter told us to abstain from passions was in chapter 1, verse 14. He said, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions, same word, the desires of your former ignorance. And he gave us a reason there. And the reason was this, because he who called you is holy, so you should also be holy. That was the first time he said it. Don't go after all the passions of your flesh. Abstain from them. Why? Because God who called you is holy, so you need to try to be like God. The second time, he told us, is on the heels of what we saw last week, verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, He's given us a fuller picture. Not only should we abstain from these passions because God's called us and He's holy and we should be holy, but we also see what God has done for us. We are chosen. We are royal. We are holy. So because of that, abstain from unholy, unrighteous things that war against your soul. That is the motivation. That is the teaching that we're being exhorted to. So how do we do this? Just a few thoughts in your notes. How do you abstain from these very real desires? Because they are real. They tempt you. It is important to note, by the way, that scripturally, temptation is not sin. Desires themselves are not sin. They come from a sinful place, but they themselves are not sin. What is sinful is when we give in to temptation and when we follow these desires. So how do we keep from doing that? One, remain near to Christ. Remain, abide, stay near to Christ. This is worship daily, singing songs of praise and letting those words get in your spirit. It's praying, it's reading Scripture, it's staying close to Jesus. Don't let the distractions, the cares of this world choke that out. We talk about this a lot. We get so busy and we think, i got to get this done and this done and this done and this done. We get to the end of the day and we're like, oh, I never really had time for Jesus today. Never never was really in Scripture today. We got it totally backwards. So remain near to Christ. Hear His Word and do it by the power of the Spirit. Secondly, remain among the community. Remain near to Christ. Remain near His people. Remain among the community. Stay in the community of believers. Come to worship corporately. Go to small groups. Go to Bible studies. Hold Bible studies. 
get together with people over coffee to talk about the Word. Again, we live busy lives. But every one of us knows in the midst of our busy lives, we take time for what we value. We take time for what we see to be important. And God has shown us in His Word that community is not optional. We're not called to individualistic Christianity. We need each other. We need to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that we are not deceived by sin. We have blind spots we can't see. We need other people to help us with. Stay in the community. Find a community that teaches the Bible, that loves people, as Christ loves people, and be in that place. And then finally, flee temptation without delay. Remain near to Christ, remain among the community, flee temptation without delay. How do we flee temptation? One, repent. Every time you feel those desires welling up, every time you feel temptation, every time you trip over it and you fall into it, turn around and pray, confess and repent. And put up practical restrictions. If there's a certain thing or certain situation that keeps causing you to fall into temptation, you need to restrict yourself. Do so practically. Do so wisely. Flee these passions because they will kill you from the inside out. That's Peter's first exhortation. That's the negative exhortation. Now he gives us a positive exhortation, beginning in verse 12. So the way that we can read this is, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of your flesh because they wage war against your soul. And, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, verse 12, keep your conduct honorable, specifically as you live your life among the Gentiles, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So the positive command that he's giving us is because this isn't your home, because you're sojourners and exiles... Keep your conduct honorable. Conduct literally means the day-to-day pattern of your life. What he is calling us to here is holiness. Holiness. Now, if you remember when we've taught on holiness here before, I've said that holiness involves two things. I think most people, when they hear holiness, we think, don't do bad. That's what holiness is. Don't sin. That's part of it, but that is not a full picture of holiness. It's not what biblical holiness is. Holiness involves two things. It involves a separation and a dedication. The separation is you separate yourself from that which is common and worldly, that which is sinful. But if you stop there, all you are is a good moralist who's trying to not do bad things. And unfortunately in the church... For a very long time, holiness has been taught that way. Be morally good people. We're missing. Because it also involves a dedication. Be dedicated to Christ. Be dedicated to the glory of God. Be separated from that which is common because you've been called to something so much greater. The glory of God. So when Peter says, because your identity is sojourners and exiles... Keep your conduct honorable. Be holy. And I think, because Romans 12.1 tells us, 
that worship is to present to God your whole life as a living, holy sacrifice, I think it is right for us to equate growing in holiness with growing in worship. Becoming holy is becoming an authentic worshiper of God, which is how we will spend all of eternity. So here's a second life truth. And humorously, some of you pointed out that I skipped this life truth last week, so it's making a second appearance, at least part of it. Here's the one I skipped last week. Worship is the central purpose of God's work in your life. Worship is the central purpose of God's work in your life. Look at verse 9 in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That's what we looked at last week. That you are so that you. So he's, a, he's just told us who we are. Chosen, royal, holy, a people for God's own possession. Now He's going to tell us why. Why has God done those things? Why has God chosen us? Why has God made us royal priesthood? Why has God separated us from the nations? Why are we His own possessions? He has done this so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of the darkness into His marvelous light. That is what life is supposed to be about. If you've ever asked yourself, what is God's will for me? It starts here. His will for you is that you become an authentic worshiper, that you proclaim His excellencies. Whatever you do in life, proclaim Him in all you do. If you dig ditches every day, find a way to proclaim Jesus as you dig ditches among the people you work with and interact with. If you stay at home all day and raise a family, and work hard in the home, you look for ways to proclaim Jesus in that. Whatever you do, you proclaim Jesus. Your business is not just your business, it's a means for you to proclaim Jesus. Your job's not just to earn money, it's a way for you to proclaim Jesus. That's who we are, resident aliens. If our life is not centered on worship, then we are simply one of the conforming citizens of the world. So, worship is the central purpose of God's work in your life, and here's the rest of the life, life truth. Growing in authentic worship will result in glory to Christ and good for those around you. Growing in authentic worship, the purpose of your life, will result in glory to Christ and good for those around you. So he called us a priesthood. So we said last week, priest, minister. We minister to God through praise. We minister to other people in humility as an ambassador of Christ. And the motivation for us to do all of this, to grow in worship, to grow in holiness, is so that we can glorify God. Growing in holiness is not so you can meet some religious rule. Get those thoughts out of your mind. You grow in holiness. You grow as an authentic worshiper so you can glorify God with your life. 
so you can proclaim Him to others, so that you can make Him known. God has put every single one of you in unique situations to proclaim Him that no one else can or is called to. You have specific people in your life that you can make Jesus known to that no one else is able. God's designed that for you. And the more that you grow as a worshiper, the more that you grow in holiness, abstaining from that which will kill you and being dedicated more and more to Christ, the more you're going to benefit your church family, your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, the people that you work with, the more you will be a benefit to them, the more you grow in holiness. Everyone around you will benefit from you growing as a worshiper. So let's kind of break it down in your notes. In this life that we're called to, authentic Christ followers, number one, are in a place of spiritual authority. In this life, authentic Christ followers are in a place of spiritual authority. Here's what I mean by that, and here's why I'm including it. This is extremely important for everything that he's about to tell us over the next few weeks. I've said this to you a couple of times. Peter is about to tell us to do things that we are not going to want to do. I will give you a preview of next week. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. No thank you is what we say to that. What I want you to know is before he ever gets you to this point, he has told you, you are in a position of strength. You are chosen by God. You are a royal priesthood. You are his people for his possession. You are a set-apart nation and race of people. You are in a position of strength. He goes to as far as to say, if you are truly a Christ follower, you are going to inherit the earth and you will judge angels, whatever that means. If we know who we are, we know what to do. And God tells us to take this position of strength that we are in and serve people. And our, immediately we say, wait, what? The same thing Jesus' disciples said because they thought when they realized He was the Messiah that He was going to overthrow the government. And He said, it's not time for that yet. Serve. But we serve from a position of strength. We are willing to abstain from the world and the pleasures of the world and submit ourselves to, to the world in service even if it causes suffering, because we are living as Christ lived until Christ returns. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to prove to the world our strength. Edmund Clowney, who's a theologian, when he was writing about this passage, he said, we have been brought near to God as priests and saints and sons and daughters because we are God's own possession, beloved of the Lord. You don't have to cherish your own dignity. You don't have to worry that this is beneath you because God has already told you who you are. And I would add, 
you don't have to defend your own dignity. You don't have to show others who you are because God's already told you that. You are chosen royal priest of his own possession. And we need to remember that because, secondly, we will be maligned by the world. We will be maligned by the world. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, he didn't say there, if they do speak against you, he said, so that when this happens, so we will be maligned by the world. We are in a position of strength in Christ, chosen royal priest, his own possession, and the world will malign us for that. They will slander us, they will defame us, they will vilify us. Jesus said, if they said those things about me, they're going to say them about you. One of the things that I think we're really good at is being really surprised when the world hates us and says things that are bad about us. And Jesus told us a really long time ago that was going to happen. It's an expectation. Peter knew what was happening when he wrote this letter, and he knew what was coming. If you remember, I told you week one, this letter was being written at a time where hostility was increasing for believers. Emperor Nero was already in power, and very likely within three years of Peter writing this letter, he's murdered. Church history says upside down, crucified by Nero for his faith in Jesus. It was written about Christians at that time in Nero's day. They are animated by a novel and mischievous superstitions. They get really fired up about some book and some really odd superstitions. They have this meal where they eat someone's flesh and drink their blood. These were the things that were being said about Christians. We will be maligned by the world. So take those two truths. We're in a position of strength, of spiritual authority. We will be maligned by the world. So what do we do? Jesus says, use your position of strength to serve even your enemies. Use your position of strength to serve even your enemies. This is so backwards to how we think. But this is called meekness, where you are humble in a position of power. Where you have power, yet you lay that aside to serve other people. That's how Jesus lived. The spirit of the world demands its rights. The spirit of Christ gives up its rights so that we can lift others up to God, even our enemies. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do good to your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. He changed the whole dynamic. He said, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I say, do good to those who hurt you. Pray for those who persecute you. It's a whole different dynamic. He said, let your light shine before men that they might glorify your God in heaven. And that's what Peter says in verse 12. Be holy, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that 
Here's why. When they malign you, and they will, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation in the Bible, it's when God visits someone. Sometimes He would visit someone for judgment, sometimes for mercy. I believe what Peter is saying is that if you live a good life among the Gentiles, some of them will see your good life and they will turn to God and glorify it. They will be saved and the means that God uses to bring them to Himself will be your good deeds, the way you live your life. This is so backwards from how we think. We're strong. The most spiritually powerful people in the world because of Christ. So people should serve us. And the Bible says, no, you serve people. Okay, I'll do that, but not my enemies. And the Bible says, no, even your enemies, because some of your enemies are going to become your brothers and your sisters, and they're going to become that because you are going to do good to them. So how do we do good deeds? This is where I want us to end today. What are some of these good works that we can do among the world? I want you to have the perspective that we are in a strong position, a chosen, royal, holy people that belong to God, and that He is calling us because of that to do good in the world, even among the Gentiles, even among our enemies, so that some may be saved. How do we do that? This is not an all-encompassing list, but let me give you four things to think about of good deeds that we can do before the world. Number one, be available. What I mean by be available is be ready to make yourself available to people that God puts in your life. Whether it's just for 30 minutes or an hour or whether it is someone working with you every day. Whether they have a nominal religious lifestyle, or whether they live a lifestyle completely opposed to the Bible. Be available and listen more than you talk. Here's, here's the reality that we lose because of social media. Not every situation in the world needs us to speak into it. Not every person needs us to tell them our opinion. Social media blurs those lines. It invites us to insert ourselves into every situation, every, every problem, every conversation. We don't need to. Some of us, we would do good to step back some from that. But, not, maybe me, but we are to make ourselves available to the people God puts in our lives. Listen to them. Church, listening to people doesn't mean you agree with them. Just being willing to listen to someone's view, even if it's really, really, really opposed to your view. It is a tool that God has given you to show respect and to do a good deed before the world. Secondly, be humble. Be humble. To these people that God puts in your life, be humble. What I mean by that is always start with what's wrong with you before you tell someone else what's wrong with them. Always start with your own failings. Be willing to share where you have struggled and what Jesus has done for you in His mercy. Be humble and willing to tell them that before you tell someone else what they need to do. Third, be gracious. Be gracious. 
what I mean and what I'm thinking of when I see be, be gracious is actively listen, be slow to speak. And when you do speak, think really hard about what you're going to say. Be discerning. The Bible says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. So be available to people, be humble to people, be slow to speak. When you do speak, be gracious. You can be bold and be gracious at the same time. I want to, I want to read you, this is fairly short, but I, I want to read this to you. There was a man you may have heard of, John Newton. John Newton wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He was a former slave trader turned preacher and abolitionist, lived in the 1700s. He wrote to a fellow minister one time, and if you want to see this whole letter, you can look it up on the Internet. Just type in John Newton on controversy, on controversy. This is David's paraphrase of part of that letter, and I think it is actually required reading for any of us who would ever engage in theological discussions with someone else, whether it's on the Internet or in real life. But some of you, you, you know, we may not um, we may not comprehend things really well if you want a copy of this. When someone's reading something to you, we may not comprehend it. So if you want a copy of it, I'll send it to you. But here's what John Newton said. You will often find yourself engaged in controversy, especially when the truth you love is attacked. Remember that you are on the side of strength, for truth will prevail in the end. Because of this, I'm not worried about your battle with an opponent. I'm worried about the battle with yourself. Because if you cannot defeat you, then you will be wounded. I wish before you began any form of communication with someone who opposes truth that you would earnestly pray for them. You would ask that they would respond to the Lord in His teaching. If they're not a believer, they should have your compassion more than your anger. They know not what they do. If they could open their own eyes and soften their own hearts, then it would be right for you to be offended at their stubbornness. But if you believe that only God in His grace can do these works of miracles, then you are bound to the exercise of instructing with gentleness. If our zealousness for truth is embittered, by anger, insults, or contempt, then while we think we are doing service to the cause of Christ, in reality, we are only bringing it into discredit. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. We take arguments drawn from Scripture and we communicate them with a careful, mild approach that whether or not we can convince them of the truth, we will at least convince them that we care for their soul. We are commanded to contend for the faith. If ever such a defense were urgently needed, it appears to be so in our day. Errors abound on all sides, and every truth of the gospel is either directly denied or grossly misrepresented. But what will it benefit us if we silent, silence our opponent and at the same time lose the humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights? Because the wisdom from above is pure, but it's also peaceable and gentle. Therefore, I urge you, church, to go in the name and strength of the Lord. Speak truth in love, and may He let many people see that you are taught by God and favored with the power of the Holy Spirit. We're in the midst of a culture 
that promotes what God opposes. We are in the midst of a culture that picks days and times and weeks and months and sets them aside to promote what God opposes. Some of us in this room, our error that we lean to is we're way too angry about that. We don't have compassion on people who are lost. We are angry at them as if they could save themselves. And we will be bitter. And we will malign the truth of the gospel with the way that we insult, belittle, or make fun of those who don't know Jesus. On the other hand, some of us, our error is different. And this will bring me to my last blank of how we serve the world. Be bold. Fearless courage. Some of us, the error that we lean to is we're going to be way too complicit. We are going to be tempted to promote what the world promotes and agree with them, even if it opposes God, and we're going to call it kindness and love. And it's not. If you go along with something that God opposes because God has said, if you embrace this way of life, it will kill you. If you go along with that without being willing to tell someone the truth that their soul is in danger if they continue in that way of life, you can call that whatever you want, but it is not love. All we have done is redefined what love is. You probably know where you are on that line. You probably know if you lean toward the error of anger and embitterness, God is calling you to serve the world with the truth you proclaim with grace. And you probably know if you lean toward being gracious and kind to the point that you really don't want to tell someone the truth, and God is calling you to be bold and have fearless courage. Sam, you can come on up. Right perspective. That's what we need. We need to daily be reminded of who God says we are. We need to be daily reminded of what we're supposed to do because of that. We need to be daily reminded of the good deeds. We need to be daily reminded to be available and humble, gracious and bold. We need God's help desperately. So let's spend some time this morning asking Him for that. We're going to end today in worship, you guys. If you will, if you'll bring the lights down, please. I want to invite you to a couple of things this morning. One, if you have never come to a saving relationship with Jesus... I want to ask you to please today consider coming to Him for the first time. I want to ask you and invite you to come and follow Jesus. I, I say this all the time. I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm not asking you if you've been in church your whole life. I'm asking you, have you ever come to a place of following Christ, being willing to obey Him 
and do what He asks. Would you do that today? Would you come? Would you let someone know before you leave here today that God is dealing with your spiritual life? Come tell me and I'll make time and we'll talk. Come and follow Jesus. Be baptized as a profession of faith. Or come back from your wandering. If you've wandered from the grace of the Lord, if you've wandered from the truth of the Lord, He's brought you to this place today that you might come back from that wandering? Or would you come this morning and ask for miracles? What do you need God to do? What do you need Him to show in your life His power? Maybe it's physical healing. Maybe it's the healing of a relationship. Maybe it's a sin that you just can't break. Would you come today and ask God to do a miracle? When I say come, I mean a couple of things. One, primarily, come to the Lord. What that looks like for you, where you are. If you want, you can come up here and pray. I want to invite you, if you want to have someone pray with you. If I get Nick and Rob and Eric, if you don't mind. I just want to have some guys over here that are just there to pray for you. Jeanette, you come with Eric if you if you'd like. If you want anybody to pray with you about miracles, about what's happening in your life, just as we're singing this song, come and tell them what's going on. They'll pray for you. Father, I want to ask You this morning that You would do the work that only You can do. I'm aware, God, of my limitations and frailties. I know that we are living in difficult times. And I know some of us are not living in difficult times. We're living in times that we love. God, we need Your perspective. I'm asking You this morning to do the work of opening people's eyes and their hearts. Shine light into them, into their soul. Let them see what is true. And what is right, bring people in this room right now to salvation. Please. Bring people back from their wanderings. Please. Do works of miracles. Please. Help us. We are in desperate need of You. I ask You this morning to do what it looks like to respond to what God has said to you. Maybe it's just to stand up and sing with glad and thankful hearts. But don't be distracted. Don't just sit, pray, ponder, worship. Come and receive prayer. Let us know what the Lord is dealing with you on. May this be a day of right perspective for us. Let it be, Father. Amen.